Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm thrilled to share this episode with you today with none other than Larry Florio at Larry Florio on Twitter. Larry is the general counsel at Delphia Technologies, Inc., one of the most innovative data-driven investment DAO projects in the world. Larry previously held senior counsel roles with several prominent blockchain-focused software developers and has been active in the crypto space for as long as I can remember. Larry, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks, Jacob. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here. And I think this will be a fun one. I'd love to uh, to start where I typically do, which is the Genesis block. Do you recall where you first heard of Bitcoin? And then the second part of that question is, when did you decide to bring it into a legal practice? Sure. Uh, I remember first hearing about Bitcoin back in about 2013, 14. And it was actually on an NPR podcast. And they were just talking about well, this weird new thing. And I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of strange. Uh, I started asking some of my more tech-savvy friends about it. It's like, yeah, I've been mining it. It's great. I'm like, oh, what's it up to now? It's like, oh, like $100. I'm like, oh, that's a lot for some, some <laughs> random thing that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it kind of just stayed there for a while until a few years later, I was uh, catching up with a friend and he started talking about Ethereum. And not just Ethereum, but more generally smart contracts. I'm like, okay, that sounds interesting. Um, but I didn't have a lot of background in what he was talking about. Uh, then he said, I have to check out CryptoKitties. This was, this was his way of getting me down the rabbit hole. So you have to check out CryptoKitties. I'm like, okay, so we're at a bar, I pull out my phone, I check it out. I'm like, oh, this is a picture of a cat. I'm like, you want me to buy a picture of a cat? It's like, no, no, I want you to buy two. It's like, why do I need to buy two? Because then you can breed them and have more. I'm like, I'm not sure I want the one cat. Now you're saying I need to have two so I can have at least three. I'm like, okay, well, I did it. I'm like, okay, I kind of see what's happening here, but... At the time, my job was very much in traditional finance, no real crypto angle to it at all. So I just kind of didn't have the time, unfortunately, to dive back, dive into it. Fast forward again to a couple years ago now, I guess, and DAOs start to become one of the, new, the big new things. And from my background, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. What is a DAO? What are its members? How do they relate to each other? Are there liabilities here? How do they deal with things off-chain? Oh, and the, and the token. The token is membership, but is it a security? Everyone says it's not a security, but why is it not a security? And these are the sort of questions that just started taking over my mind until my, I've got to do this. This is too much fun. This is too weird. I've got to be doing this full-time. And it's, never look back. It's amazing how it can, like, curio following your curiosity in crypto yeah. is just such a good way to get into the space and, and never leave. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's why it's fun to be here, right? Because we're just passionate about the things we're working on and seeing and talking about all the time. And so you mentioned you were in a tradi more traditional role prior to joining the crypto space. 
what what was the role and what type of work were you doing? Yeah, so at the t- the last TradFi job I had before going full-time into the space was at a merchant bank called The Rain Group that does quite a few things. They have an investment banking business that does capital raising and M&A advisory for a lot of really impressive companies and groups. They have a fund management platform with a hedge fund, venture fund, growth equity funds. And it was really, really interesting all the things I got to work on there. But again, it was not, it was tech focused, but not tech focused in the way that we talk about in in crypto and Web3 so much. Um, And I just really wanted to get more into the space. I was spending more and more time chatting with people on Discord and in Telegram and the Twitter DM startup and like this is, and I would be sitting on the couch next to my wife, and she'd see me on my phone or laptop. She's like, "Are you working?" I'm like, "I'm not sure, actually." <laughs> like we all kind of, it's like all half shop talk, half just you know, banter, and it, you know, I just like I want to be doing this all the time. So I uh, got introduced to actually the founding team, the founders of Syndicate, and we hit it off. And a lot of the really interesting tooling that they're building there had uh, a lot of applicability to my traditional finance. So it was a really easy way for me to segue into the space. And I'm really grateful to them for, I mean, first of all, they're building amazing things, but also for giving me the opportunity to be that TradFi lawyer, which is a scary phrase to people in crypto, and give me the chance to, to really learn and grow here. And so when you first started off making that transition, you'd heard about DAOs, you thought, oh, crypto's interesting, I want to do this more, more full-time, I want to bring this into my career. Thinking back to that time and to where you are now, what is the biggest, what was the biggest learning that you've experienced since then? And the reason I'm asking, I just want to frame it because it helps me think about where I I think the answer could go or, or maybe give you some ideas. Because I know when I first got involved in crypto, I had some ideas of what Bitcoin was, of what Ethereum was, how a blockchain worked. And now that I think back, two, three years, it's amazing just how almost wrong I really was at the base level. What Has there been something like that that comes to mind for you? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question and it's great, a great framing for it. Uh, I, when I first got into it, for me, it was sort of an interesting new technology. And I knew there was a lot of um, emergent things like DAOs that were taking place around that technology. But but. It was a combination of just curiosity about new tech for me and then seeing these things form. And I was talking so much about it in my free time. I just wanted to be doing it more professionally. But at the time, really, I didn't fully appreciate the ethos of the space. You know, that real cypherpunk, why are we doing this? Why does blockchain matter? Why are these things important? Why does trustlessness and permissionlessness actually matter in the world today? And the more time you spend in the space, I think, the more you start to appreciate those first principles and why these things matter and why things like DAOs are interesting and important and why they can function when, I mean, I don't know, like, why do I trust somebody with some nonsense username and a a picture of a Pokemon? But you do, right? I mean, because there is that open, transparent aspect to it that allows you to trust without having to, to know. And so when you first got involved, had you, would you say you underestimated the ethos of Web3 or, or misunderstood? I think probably a little bit of both, but mostly underappreciated it. It was secondary to me at that time to just an, a cool new thing that was happening versus the very established area of, areas of law that I was practicing before that. But I think I've just sort of gotten indoctrinated over time now 
and really value those principles that underpin the development of everything that we talk about today. And I think that's been part of my education as well in this space is it opens your eyes to the importance of something like privacy, something like monetary policy, whereas prior to crypto, most people, I know personally, it would be, I'm not doing anything wrong. That's okay if the government can see what I'm doing. But once you start to get into that Web3 mindset, it's like, wait a second, <laughs> I don't know about this. And, and now you start to recognize the intrusions in privacy, to use one example. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, I, not that this is a reason to, that privacy doesn't matter, but I don't really know that I have too much to hide out there. But you start to value the ability to hide, not because you're trying to obfuscate, but because it's your, this is your personal activity and you should have the right to make it as open or as closed as you want it to be. And I, I know personally when I was applying for rent for an apartment in Toronto, I had to give them how much money I was making, how much money my fiancé was making, any debt outstanding. It went a bit above and beyond what should be given to someone like a landlord, for example. Right. And, and that's just one example of where privacy can be eroded relatively quickly. And maybe it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Like, are they really going to use that for anything? Probably not. But it's still an invasion of your personal identity and, and some background information that people shouldn't have. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's not a matter of how, it's just a matter of why. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, so now you're, you're a lawyer in crypto, you left TradFi. Had a question from Mark Goldich that came in. So thank you, Mark, for this. Shout out to oh, Mark. No. Um, he wants to know, do you prefer wearing the legal hat or the business hat? Yeah. Um, this goes back to when, when I worked a lot with Mark uh, very closely at Terraform Labs, and he obviously was the general counsel there, but I was chief corporate counsel, where I oversaw a lot of the, the deal-oriented stuff that was going on. And you have to switch between those hats a lot in that sort of role, because especially like in an investment committee meeting, you are thinking about, for like from my perspective, the how much documentation, what's the right structuring for this stuff, but also, like, is this actually a good investment? Is this a good deal? How does this track with our priorities. And I often say, and this I think predates even my time at TFL, that to be that to be a good lawyer, you really have to be a good business person too. Because there's lots of lawyers out there that can execute well and draft per perfect documents and negotiate a great deal, but they might be missing the core here, which is your job is to get to the business goal. And everything else is a means to the end. And you have to have that business hat, that business mindset, I think, to really be able to appreciate that and focus on the right priorities and not just what can ultimately become a bit of busy work. Yeah. Many of the lawyers I've spoken with on this podcast have said that something that makes a great lawyer is that ability to wear that business hat. Is that something you think is inherent to people or that they can build if someone, say, doesn't have a business background but became a lawyer? What would you say they could do to, to start to build that business mindset? Sure. It's a great question. I think that it starts by talking to your clients, whether that be if you're at a firm, your actual law firm clients, or if you're in-house counsel, the business teams that you're working with. And First off, pay attention to the context of the emails that you're on. Don't wait for them to say, hey, Larry, hey, Jacob, can you please 
work on this. Follow the conversation. Listen on those calls. Check out the documents if there's attachments on those things. Build some more context to what you're working on. Don't have it just be in a vacuum. But also just talk to them as people, too. Like, hey, why is this important? Why did you do it like that? As you build that rapport and that relationship, there are going to be, those are going to be easier and easier conversations to have. And the business team, again, whether it's internal or external client, is going to actually appreciate that because they'll see that you're business-minded, that you're focused not on just saying no or, or showing that you're an excellent lawyer, that you're really focused on how to get to yes. How do we achieve the business outcome that we want here? And that's something I always try to tell people who are earlier in their careers than I do, that you can be a good lawyer by saying no a lot. You can only be a great lawyer if you figure out how to say yes. I like that. I like that a lot. Figure out how to say yes. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, you'll, get, you'll get a lot of business teams that say, hey, we want to do something crazy. And your immediate response, and I've said this plenty, is that's actually crazy. <laughs> but so maybe you can't get them to 10, but talk through why did we want to get to 10? What are we trying to get to there? Say, like, okay, well, maybe we can get to like nine. Or maybe there's Z over here, which is almost 10, and is actually a better outcome for us. You just don't know until you start digging into it. Right. So it's, okay, I'm not sure how we'll be able to achieve this, but let's have that as the North Star that we're going to follow and use that to guide my research and, and the feedback that I'll give you. Exactly right. Okay. I, I like that, Larry. Find a way to yes. And so... When you first began bringing crypto into your legal practice, I can imagine there were a lot of things that were difficult to get to yes. Is there something that comes to mind as the most challenging aspect that you think others might be going through and, and you could talk a bit about? Yeah, it's less of a specific instance and more just, I think, the risk aversion that many of us lawyers have in general, right? It's probably what drew a lot of us to the space to begin with, is getting past that. Now, we're working in crypto and in Web3 with blockchain technology. This stuff is all early, early days. And the areas of law that we're dealing with weren't built for technology and a system that works the way that this works. So you have to cludge things together a little bit. And there's not going to be a lot of precedent, if there's any at all, uh, that's directly analogous to the things that you're working on. You have to just become more comfortable being uncomfortable than a lawyer in a more established area. And doing research in an area where there is no clear answer was the first thing I learned while I was articling Absolutely. after law school. It was unbelievable to think, well, there's not really a rule for this, but maybe we can, we can squeeze it in here. Yeah, you, you try to go back, again, go back to first principles, figure out the spirit of the law, and try to track from there. And... One tweet that you had that I just wanted to highlight, and, and I'll quote, pro tip to my fellow lawyers out there. Your client isn't impressed by your heavy-handed drafting, and they're less impressed by your heavier-handed markups of the other side's draft. Stay focused on the biz goal and get it done without unnecessary risk. Your client will love you, unquote. And I really like that tweet because it's a good reminder in a legal space where it is easy to markup to be try to be at least overly impressive even though that might not be the explicit goal uh, in practice how what could lawyers do to be more mindful of business goals i think it goes back to again asking the business team what the actual goal is here they're not going to say we want to go 20 turns on this agreement and three weeks from now be able to sign it 
when the actual practical outcome is probably close to the same, they want to move fast. They want to get it done. They want to go do the next thing. So if I get an agreement from the other side and it's fine, right? Maybe like I personally like change some framing or change some the terminology or I don't like that defined term. Most of that doesn't actually matter. And so I'll just let it go. You know, it's, it's one thing to draft it myself and have it the way that I want it, but I'll work with what other council, other council gives me and I'll get it there the best I can. And I'll maybe complain about it and grumble a little bit along the way and say, Oh, I would have drafted this better than they would have. But I'm like, that doesn't matter though. Like I'm not working for myself here. If it's my deal, then I can go and do that if I really want to. But then being the business person in that sort of situation, I still don't care. I just want to get the deal done and move on to the next thing. And so how do you determine when to let it go and when to rip apart the other side's draft? Because I, I can imagine there are times where that is necessary. Yeah, It's a balancing act. I can imagine part of your answer will be you take a business approach to it. But are there some things that, that you consider when, when doing that? Yeah, I think that it's just one of those things you develop with time and practice. You start to see how a deal went. Oh, it actually blew up that deal. It's like, oh, it was that. maybe it was that. Maybe that actually wasn't as good or fine as it seemed earlier on. Or maybe you had an issue in an earlier with an, something you did years ago, and so you really marked it up hard and really tried to grind it out to get exactly what you wanted, and it didn't actually matter. It's just, I think, one of those things that as you ha- have more experience, you start to get a little bit more of a sensitivity to what's important and what's not. And yes. also, if, if you're part of a team or at a firm, just talk to the other people there, right? You don't have to operate in a vacuum. Yeah, use the people around you. Don't Absolutely. try to do it all by yourself. Exactly right. And one thing that I, I love with the idea of experience and something I didn't figure out until not that long ago was I always thought experience, you know, I'd have to be this 15-year call. I need tons of clients. And then, like you mentioned, you go through these iterations. Another thing you can also do is share your work publicly with the relevant disclaimers and things like that. That's something you've done, and it gives people a chance to pick apart your work. It might be bad for the ego in the short term, but for your legal skills in the long run, I'm sure they're better off because of that. And for someone like me, who's relatively young in my career, doesn't have a massive client base, it's difficult to get that blow up experience where things went wrong unless you can do some sort of open sourcing. And on that point, to to finally get to a question, you know, you tweeted out a GitHub slash Larry Florio slash legal forms. And this essentially was the latest version of your open source DAO contributor agreement. You encouraged everyone to use fork, pull, or otherwise improve this. Why did you decide to do that? And what did you learn after? I was really encouraged to do that by the by the other people over in LexPunk Army, actually. There was a big focus there on working in the, building in the open, the same that, that a lot of the developers are doing, right? And there's no reason why lawyers can't do that the same. I think a lot of it goes back to that risk aversion, aversion that we have. Like, you don't want to show imperfect product. There's liability to that. Is someone going to go to my GitHub repo and pull that out and have a deal go bad later on? It's like, oh, you provided me this legal advice and now you know, I'm, I'm going to sue you. I'm like, that's unlikely to happen. I have a disclaimer on there too. This is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer. But beyond that, again, you have to get uncomfortable being a little uncomfortable. Like No one wants to show imperfect work product out there, but that's part of what the space is. It's like you put something out there, people fork it, they give you comments on it. 
you build off of it and you try to have something better later on. And it's, it was actually a really cool experience. It was, I got a lot of positive feedback from it. Some people have forked it and there are different versions of it floating out there now. And even now I keep running into people. Oh, I actually saw that like a few months ago. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, what do you think about it? I'm like, oh, I thought it was terrible. Well, tell me why. I want to know so we can make it better. So we can do another updated version and we can keep improving it. Oh, that's incredible. Was there a, a moment of overcoming a dragon, so to speak, where you're like, oh, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do this. You know, like this is pretty risky. Things could happen that, that you had to just put yourself out there. I think I ripped that Band-Aid off a little bit when I took the dive down the rabbit hole and went full-time in the space to begin with. I'd been in traditional finance for over a decade, had a good network, I had a good job, I worked with great people, I had a good career ahead of me still, and I didn't quite throw it all away, but I took a big risk moving into a new and certain area where I didn't really know exactly what I was doing, I didn't know what I would be working on. I didn't know if it was all going to just blow up and go to zero like a week later. Like you just don't know. But that really helped me. Again, I'm going to keep going back to this. I think like getting uncomfortable, being uncomfortable, because that risk aversion modulation towards taking more risk or at least taking more calculated risk has really served me pretty well. Because we have to be creative with our clients and the things that we're working on here. And getting feedback from other people is so valuable. Hugely valuable. Have you gone back into the Dow Contributor Agreement and updated it since? Or do you look into that at all these days? It's on my list. I haven't had a chance to to go and do that yet. But I encourage all of your listeners to do the work for me and fork it and improve it. We'll put a link we'll put a link in the in the show notes below. Do you recommend like when do you think others should think about open sourcing their work or sharing their work through some sort of GitHub repository because there is that balance between it's I can't remember the quote but there's basically this balance between showing people that you have some idea what you're doing and getting feedback and improving versus wasting people's time and and having something that's not a refined product is there something that you think about when determining whether to open source certain certain works a few questions come to my mind before I do something like that. First, is, is this actually my work to put out there? You know, if I was working on an agreement for somebody and all I had really done was mark up someone else's initial draft, that's not mine to put out there in the first place. It wouldn't be right whether or not I could actually do it. Secondly, is is this something, and I don't think this is a necessary one, but it's one I ask myself, but is this something new or interesting that you, I haven't seen before but that people ask about or could or could be useful? You know, if it's a new tool, then I'm, I'm more inclined to put it out there than another version of something that there's already in existence. Okay, so it's looking at what's out there and looking at what have I done and is there an opportunity here? Right, you know, trying to build new things and grow the space. I love it, Larry. That's, that's the path I think we need to be going in a space that is so new. And so I'm sure you've learned from this going forward. Would you... Going forward, would you share more or less now that you've been through one iteration of this process? I'd love to share more. I want to share everything. The 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 only reason I haven't is just finding enough time to make sure that everything is scrubbed properly and maybe I go back through, read it closely, make a few tweaks here or there. But I, want to make, I definitely don't want to leak any confidential information or any client information. And a lot of things I work on are fairly long-form documents. And I'd love to put them out there, but I also want to make sure that 
no one is going to get upset or have something bad happen as a result of that? Yeah, it's a tough one because I've always wanted to share every document that I've worked on. But then once you have clients involved, it becomes tricky where they might be paying for this particular document and wouldn't want it shared. And so you have to keep them in mind. Do you think we'll have, like, have you seen, are there repositories that can be vetted or, or things like that for the community to use? Like, is there a best practice that we could adopt as crypto lawyers here? I think err on the side of building in the open when you can is, is is what I would really recommend there. If you have, to your point, if you have something that was drafted for a client, but you think it could be interesting, ask them, hey, would you mind if I anonymize this and open source it? I don't think that they'll, they're likely to have a problem unless it was a very bespoke agreement. But then take a step back and ask, you, and ask yourself a few questions like, okay, I drafted this for a client for a very specific purpose. But could I make this a little bit broader and now it could actually be something that's more flexible and more versatile? Because now maybe I modify that and now I have something that could be interesting to open source and post on a GitHub repo. I like that. Okay. I think that's a a good way to think of it. Why, Why do you think we don't have more of those types of docs open sourced? There are so many good lawyers in the space. There really are. There's some incredible people here. And I think a lot of it comes down to if you're at a firm, especially a larger firm, it's a lot of bureaucracy to get an approval for something like that. And now you're dealing with multiple lawyers' risk aversions stacked on top of each other. Not the type of composability I think most of us are looking for there. A lot of us are also just too busy to be able to do this, unfortunately. Um, And again, I think just you're... You want to be careful because we're all we're the people who are drafting the risk factors and conflicts disclosures and warnings and terms and conditions like we are by practice designed to be worrying about what's the worst possible thing that could happen here and trying to control for it. And that makes it really hard to want to take a risk on your own stuff. Right, especially when your your membership in the law society could depend <laughs> on it. Exactly. And so you recently started a new role at Delphia. Congratulations. Thank you. For those unfamiliar with the company, could you explain what you and your team do? Sure. So Delphia is a few different things depending on the angle that you're looking at it from. But ultimately, it's driven by a mission to democratize access to financial prosperity, which is a big mission of course, and there's lots of other great companies and projects working on that. So for us, it was, how do we do this? How do we execute on that? So we then developed a thesis, and this predates my time there, that a person's data is really valuable. I think that we sort of intuitively understand that. If you look at some of the largest market cap stocks, I think you'll very quantitatively understand that. But how do you make that more fair, more open? Say, okay, well, what if we only took personal data from people that they were willing to share with us. They have to specifically consent to what they're sharing. And then what if we tried to use that data to find meaningful signals that relate to stocks that we can guess how they might move before those moves happen? And what if we then use that to power those people's own investment accounts so that their personal data is actually driving their own investment returns? And that's kind of where Delphia came to. It's that... Your data is your, is your asset 
So, hey, share it with us and we'll turn that asset into more assets, hopefully. No guaranteed profit. That's a great idea, though. I love it because typically you have this thing where you give us your data for free. We'll figure out a way to monetize it. And that's essentially the price you pay for using our platform. Whereas this is saying, we'll take your data, we'll use it, we'll benefit a little bit, but you'll also benefit. And it, it ties the incentives together. Yeah, exactly. Once I started to wrap my head around the model, I thought it was really elegant. And just, I mean, this is great. This is the way that hopefully things will continue to go, where people have control over their own assets. And if someone else is going to monetize it, they should be able to share in that upside. Absolutely. And so are there different types of products within the Delphia space? Yeah, we have two parallel investment businesses really that all they all run through the same entities but we, uh, we have a retail investment business that looks a lot like a robo advisor you have your, your personal separate account you're investing long only into a lot of different stocks again based on that that algorithm that we use to crunch all this all this data then we also have an institutional business that has a long short equity hedge fund that can take that same data set, but can make different, more leverage short side bets. So maybe the data is saying to us, hey, this company might miss earnings next quarter. On the retail side, if it's in the portfolio, maybe that means that we sell out of it. On the institutional side, maybe that means that we short it. So if the stock goes down, we can actually make a profit from it there too. That's unfortunately is much harder to have in a, in a retail product still. No, I love that. I, I think it's so important. And so for you coming from, you know, TradFi and then going into crypto very heavily, pretty much all in, why join Delphia as general counsel? There is more to the roadmap than where things are today. I love it. Some of that is alluded to in the press around the Series A round that recently closed for the company. But one of the problems with personal data is that an individual's on its own isn't necessarily that valuable. It becomes valuable in the aggregate. But there's a collective action problem here because how do you coordinate a large group of people that have some sort of interest in common to act together? Well, hey, maybe a DAO is an interesting solution to that sort of problem. What if there was a DAO that was for people who are sharing their data towards a common goal? Please keep talking, Larry. I'm, I'm so I would intrigued. love to. You, you, might have to pull me, you, you might have to have me back on the show. <laughs> Definitely will. And for those unfamiliar, Delphia recently closed a new 60 million Series A led by Multicoin Capital. So congratulations to, to you and the team there. In, in your role then, coming in as GC post-raise, is there a typical day for you without getting into specifics? Like, What, what, what does that look like? There's no such thing as a typical day, and that's part of the fun. We have Because we have a lot of different things going on here, I get pulled in a lot of different directions, which is good and bad. But one thing I never have is a typical day. You know, we have a lot of meetings. We're trying new things. We have a lot of interesting stuff on the roadmap to launch. And you have to run through a lot of interesting questions to make sure that the products are designed the right way, that there's, they're disclosed the right way, that you're thinking about the right regulatory frameworks for a lot of this stuff. And we have regulated entities in our structure. So we have to be especially careful because beyond the fiduciary duty that we have to our clients, we 
don't want to do something that's going to go offsides on a regulation that maybe is not directly impacting the part of of Delphia that is building that, but we have to think about the full system. Right. And so when you're going through the non-typical day, but the day-to-day, you're thinking about these legal issues that are coming up while also bringing in this business approach. How do you determine when something is far enough outside your wheelhouse to bring on external counsel for a specific issue versus you taking the time to, to find an answer yourself? I always try to a little bit first. Whether or not I think I'm going to end up going to outside counsel, I want to at least have my own guess of what they might say. Also, I don't have a lot of ego on this. I have no issue saying, I don't know. Let me check into this about something. And again, I'll do a little bit of research. Every now and then, you can actually find an answer. But more often than not, again, because everything is a shade of gray, nothing's really black or white, I do want to talk to outside counsel. And luckily, we have an amazing network of people, both uh, Delphi's outside counsels, but also like within our crypto lawyer community, that I am always hitting up either for just not free advice, but let's say a little tit for tat. We all trade a little bit here or there or actually engaging outside counsel. Like I'm really happy that some of these people that I really consider very close friends, I also get to work with as well. Oh, it's amazing. And the crypto community, particularly in the legal side, I don't know how it is on the dev side because I'm not part of that, but on the legal side, I've never seen such camaraderie in the legal profession. Same. It's really something special. It is. It is. And I I think it will continue this way just because it's grown that way from the ground up and the systems are in place with LexPunk, LexDAO. You've got blockchain barristers and other organizations that are just bringing people together in a positive manner. Um, Just to double tap on on one thing you mentioned, which was when you sometimes you find an answer to, to a question that you're going through. How do you know or how do you think about whether an answer is the final answer or if it's more gray than black and white and you need to, you know, double check or bring somebody else in? There's never really a final answer on anything we work with. I think that if I get to a a definitive yes or no, I'm actually surprised more often than not. You land somewhere on probably or probably not most of the time. So it's a tough one. You just have to kind of feel it out. Yeah, I find when I reach a yes or no answer, I start to question if I was asking the right question. <laughs> that That's a good instinct. <laughs> which which is, it's good. I guess it's a good instinct, but it's frustrating in the moment because you do all this work and it's like, yes, I've got the answer. It's like, wait a minute. There's no way it's that easy. <laughs> yeah, when, when I when I get to that, I get very nervous. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not thinking about this right. <laughs> yeah, it's that self-doubt that's almost necessary to, to be risk mitigating in the in the legal profession in terms of of your work and this i think we can move even just beyond just at delphia um in your work in your life in your career if you had to put a finger on the 20 percent of the inputs that you do that lead to 80 percent of the results does anything come to mind to you it goes back to the business goal a lot of being a lawyer, especially in-house counsel, can feel very operational or administrative a lot of the time. Because it is. Because you're helping run a company. And it's important to get that done. But your primary goal should be to help the business push forward. And that can be a lot of different things depending on where you are. But that's ultimately the goal. Your job at the company is to help the company achieve its, its objectives. And that's where you have to prioritize. If we are launching a new product, 
maybe I'm not going to get a chance to file those documents away today. I just need to focus on the highest priority items. There's always more work than time. <laughs> always more work, always more emails. <laughs> always. Always more fires. Yeah. Are there things you do in your typical day to ensure that you're playing offense more often than just strictly playing defense? Because I've noticed in the legal profession, it's so easy to just use your inbox as a to-do list and not think for yourself. And if you don't do that, then you don't use any creativity or you don't give yourself a chance to differentiate from perhaps others. And I find other people essentially control your life if you do that. Right. Yeah, I do start every day with a to-do list. I am often very happy when I get to it. But I like to have my priorities for the day before I start. And that goes back to focusing on those high-impact, high-value, business objective-focused action items. I will fully just ignore my inbox on some days if I don't have time to get to it. Like I know I'm missing something that I do need to respond to. And maybe I will the next morning or it'll be late at night. But I need to prioritize. And just because someone sent me an email five minutes ago does not mean that that is the number one thing I need to work on today. I love that. So you do you set that to-do list when you sit down to start your day, or is that something that happens earlier than that? It's a little bit of a rolling list. So I'll, ta- I'll, start, I'll, I try, I'll try to do it first thing, before my first call, before my first meeting, before I start checking email. Like what are the things I actually want to get done today? What's the important stuff? What are the things I have to get done today? Because that needs to be the actual top priority. And things come up. You know, it's a very dynamic, busy space that we all work and live in. So you don't be, shouldn't beat yourself up too bad if you don't get to everything that you wanted to or thought you, you need to. But try to get to the one or two of them, the big ones, if you can. And do you schedule breaks or time to touch grass throughout your day at all? I've started to. I do have a block on my calendar that says walk at this <laughs> point. And I'll try to schedule calls and things where I don't necessarily need to be on camera for that so that I can... I don't have to take up my limited free time with something as basic as you know, going outside and moving around. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's funny how if you don't schedule time for things, something else will, will take the time. And I learned that pretty quickly in law school. It's like the idea that work will take the time you give it. And if right. I gave a moot two weeks and then I started two weeks before it was due or before the, the moot was, it would take the whole two weeks. So eventually, by the end, I would just start the night before, get it done that night, and then I had all that other time to, to do other work. Exactly. Time, time is a precious asset. There's only a finite <laughs> amount of it, so you have to allocate it carefully. It is. It is, especially in this space where it's... One thing I struggle with is the natural curiosity, especially from the legal side. You could spend, in my opinion, the next year, every day writing for 10 hours a day about crypto and the law, and still not cover everything. Absolutely. How, how do you think about what areas you're going to dive a little bit deeper in? There was the Dow contributor agreement. Like, how, what do you use as almost a mental gate for yourself to stop yourself from being distracted or losing focus? It's a great question. I don't know that I have a good answer for it. A lot of what I end up focusing on, like the Dow Contributor Agreement, are driven by things that I'm working on for clients. So that's what kind of drives the interest. I mean, it's such a dynamic space. So many things happening here, like you said. And that is just sort of the only efficiency that I've really found, is that if I have two or three different people 
that are asking about similar things, that's where, go- where I'm going to spend my time. And you're going to catch those patterns. Maybe you're getting ahead of a trend. Maybe now you're one of the thought leaders on this new development, even within our crazy hyper-development space. You just have to look for the signal and the noise. I like that. It's like see where almost everyone else is guiding you and it aligns with your interest and then you can jump on the horse, so to speak. Right. And then you, know, you just get some efficiencies as you're reading all this stuff because maybe it's personally interesting, but now you're also doing it for work, which is, it seems like a net benefit to me. <laughs> definitely. Definitely a big win-win. Are there things about your, your day, like what keeps you going, Larry? What keeps you in Web3 crypto law day-to-day? Like, is there something the that you wake the people? Okay. It's the people every single day. I, I just want to talk to my friends. And this is what we talk about. This is where almost all of us are. The one, my friends that aren't in the space, I'm just tr- trying to drag them in here because <laughs> it's just too much fun. Like, it's interesting stuff. It's interesting legal questions, right? Like, it's intellectually like, oh, how does this actually work out? Like how I got into the space. What is a DAO? What is its member? What is a token? But just again, like we were talking about the legal community within crypto and there's just such an incredible group of people that... I'm looking forward to speaking to them. These are some of my closest friends. I'm talking to them in my free time. I'm talking to them at work. So it all just kind of bleeds together. It's what keeps me excited. Yeah, no, it is nice. And and I think the deeper you go, in, the longer you're in the space, the greater you build those friendships and those connections with the people. And it becomes really a pleasure. And it, the nice thing, too, is it's more web-based, I think, than most legal professions, like more more most aspects Definitely. of the legal profession where you can be friends with someone in Florida, never really meet them in person, but you're still, you know, you have inside jokes and everything or you're, yeah. or you're investors in a certain <laughs> uh, fun together. <laughs> it's, it's true, right? I mean, it's funny. We spend all of our lives online. I've got some people I consider very close friends that I've never met in person. I have others that I've met once or twice, but this is where we are, right? I mean, it's an internet native industry, really, that we work in. So we all have to be internet native ourselves. Yeah, no, it's true. And it, it is such a welcoming group. I mean, the the group of crypto lawyers who have joined my podcast, who have supported it, they're 90% of the reason that it was possible. Depending on the different field of law you go in, some people would never be willing to have a conversation with someone who they don't know for an hour, hour and a half about a nascent development in the area and people being so willing to talk and share their time which is typically charged at hundreds thousands of dollars with with me is just a testament to how great the space is i think it's a testament to to your interviews and your podcast in general too but i definitely agree with you i mean everyone here is very excited to share everything that they're seeing and working on you know to the extent that they can it's not something that i've ever seen in another practice area well, it's so unique, right? Because it's an area where it's highly specialized with tons of acronyms, inside concepts and things like that, where you can't really talk to someone who's not in crypto law about crypto law because it just, you have to get into the weeds relatively quickly. Yeah, we use a lot of jargon. Part <laughs> of that is, I mean, a lot of it's necessary because decentralized autonomous organization just is not as catchy as DAO, right? But... I do my best as often as I can to use less tech-focused analogies when we're talking about these things. It's not always easy, and I don't always love what I'm pulling the analogy from. Like, I don't always want to analogize things to financial products or, or stuff, but some of the dynamics, that's just the easiest way to intuit the interaction. 
And it helps a lot to explain that to somebody who's not going to know what I'm talking about when I say, oh, there's a new DAO launching its token on an L2. I can just picture my mother's face if she heard somebody say that. <laughs> Same here. It's And it's funny because the jargon, you almost assimilate into the group and then you start to understand the jargon where it doesn't feel like jargon at all. Even though at the beginning, I remember Googling what GM meant because I was confused. I, I thought it was going to make it because uh, it was yeah, <laughs> NGMI. And so I thought it was not. So yeah, anyways, so it's it's a fun uh, fun area to be in. And I think it's just a really interesting place to have a legal career. I know when I was in law school doing construction law, real estate law, it got boring really quickly. Whereas crypto law, it's almost, I wish it was a little boring sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely feel that for sure. But we wouldn't be talking about it so much. We wouldn't be excited to talk about it so much if that was the case. It's true. No, that's a great point, Larry. And one thing I wanted to touch on quickly was LexPunk. And I know Mm -hmm. you're a prominent member. You're very active and I'm part of it. I think it's phenomenal. I remember when I first joined and seeing how these subgroups worked, a light bulb went off in my head that this could be the future of the legal profession. Like there's so much opportunity here. Could you like, what's your TLDR and why you enjoy being part of LexPunk and what you've learned since? It's Building in the open for the benefit of the space. Everything that LuxPunk works on is open sourced for other people to use, for other people to fork and build on, provide, again, like pressure test it, find problems, make it better for everybody. Because we're all building composable software in Web3. So why shouldn't the legal tools that we're using for that be as open source and composable as the code that people are are writing? No, they should be. I agree. And do you think... The idea of more pseudonymously published or even fully anonymized legal documents being out there with no potential liability to the creator. Is that possible? Could there be liability if I release something pseudonymously? Nobody knows it's from a lawyer. It's just from an account. But then maybe I retweet it or you retweet it or something like that. I'm going to give a very lawyerly answer. It depends. (laughs) But I don't think that there's inherently a problem with doing that, right? Because these are templates. You're not supposed to just be taking them off the shelf and not having someone else work through the specifics with you before Mm -hmm. using it. So I don't think there's necessarily a problem with publishing things that way. At the same time, you know, we are, we are lawyers, we're all licensed professionals, and I understand why someone would want to know who they're at least getting a document from. Do they even know that this is like baseline something that could be useful based on who the person is. Are they actually a lawyer? Again, maybe it doesn't matter. I know lots of people who are not licensed lawyers that are probably better lawyers in practice than a lot of other licensed lawyers. But I think it's different when you're talking about the documents. You have, I think, on some of you want to know who it's coming from, but that doesn't mean that they have to be. Like, I don't necessarily check. If I'm seeing an open source legal doc, I'm just going to take a look at it. Who wrote it is probably secondary for me. Yeah, and that's that's sort of led me to an interesting thought, which is there's strength in numbers. And if you have a team like LexPunk or something that can issue this open source document, you don't necessarily name who's responsible, but it has that curation effect where this is almost stamped as being acceptable or something that you can at least trust to be vetted. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think, you, again, it's your comfort level with these sorts of things. 
For for me as a lawyer, I probably have a lot more flexibility to do that than someone who isn't and is going to need a lawyer's help anyway. But everyone can decide their own comfort level with these things. It's all out yeah. there for you so people want it. It depends. I, I love it. It's just always. <laughs> it's it's a foolproof answer. So let's uh, let's just quickly talk about crypto plumber. You being a crypto plumber at <laughs> thing three underscore X Y Z, where you're helping builders, creators, and fellow DGens navigate the evolving world of Web three. Could you explain what at thing three underscore X Y Z is? Sure. So thing three is a service DAO that a handful of us formed, uh, I guess started up really late last year. And it really came from needs that we were seeing from people in the space. You know, there's so much talent around building and design and I mean, separate from the legal, legal community. But a lot of these people, whether they're doing it in a formal corporate structure or as a DAO, they're really running a business at the end of the day. And they need to still deal with all that operational administrative muck, really, that is necessary in running a business. And there's not a lot of skill for that in the space. There's a lot of need for it in the space. And I think we've all heard those stories about a group that went to some sort of advisor or professional or service provider and got shell-shocked on the bill because they didn't realize that they were not that crypto native, that they didn't really understand the needs or, or functions of the space that we're in and ended up really trying to learn it on their client's dime. So thing three kind of came out of necessity. We're like, hey, let's have some op- people who are operationally focused and we're all mostly all lawyers, accountants, tax professionals, people who have worked in, worked in and on and started businesses. We're not a law firm. We're not an accounting firm. We're not a tax advisor. But we're here to be able to hold hands and connect them with people that we think are good in those specialties, that have, that have the expertise, that are familiar with the space. Or if not even, we're there to be that bridge and translate between crypto jargon and legalese or tax speak or what have you. you know, we want to create efficiencies and make it easier for builders to build. I love it. Make it easier for builders to build. And I think that's something that we're all, whether explicitly or not, working towards in the legal community because that can lead to so much better societal progress, faster progress. And I'm hoping at least a more fair world for everyone around the world because I think the people in North America who say, you know, we don't need crypto and things like that, they live in the societies that allow the most freedom in the world, that have governments that you can trust to a certain extent, right? Uh, maybe not completely, right? <laughs> but it's it's that average person in the world isn't really a North American tech nerd. It's somebody who's living in China or, you know, probably a male in outside of Shanghai, you know, within a 10 kilometer radius. So I think it's important to be building not just for us, but for, for everyone in the world. Larry, what one thing before I get into the last two questions for you, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where this the legal space is going. You, you've seen it evolve over the last year or so, and I've seen it evolve tremendously. I wrote the who's who of crypto law Twitter last year, and there were about 40 or 50 lawyers. And now I, I'm doing it this year, and it's taken me almost a month, and I'm not done <laughs> because there's almost thousands now. So it's, it's, it's changed a lot. But are we on the right path when it comes to crypto law? I think so. I think that it's a fast-moving space, and you have your, everyone has their specialty areas, but we all end up having to be a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades, 
right? We have to be a little familiar with enough areas that, again, like we can go do that initial research to figure out if we have a guess before we talk to an expert on that. I think that the growing number of lawyers in the space is great because it'll allow us to, over time, develop and keep those specialties so we can have someone who's very deep in individual aspects of the space. You know, if you think back 20 years ago, there probably were lawyers that specialized in the internet. And now that's emerging company on the on the startup side there's ip there's all these other things there's like just the, the, the venture lawyers the deal lawyers there's people who focus on the privacy regulations and those are all very deep specialties in their own right these days but they didn't start that way you know we have to build and evolve within the space it's really an ecosystem and then everyone's going to find their their niche and we can then proliferate into our specialties you know, it's like the the finches on galapagos islands we all started from the one species and now there's 10 of them I love that. That's such a great answer. And I hadn't heard an answer like that before because typically you hear people say, well, there were internet lawyers, but now they're all just privacy lawyers. And that's not necessarily true, right? You have the venture lawyers, you have the software as a service lawyers, subscription-based lawyers, lawyers focused on IP rights when it comes to things like the internet. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's where the space hopefully goes. I think that as in-house counsel, you'll always need to be a little bit of a utility player, a jack-of-all-trades. That's the nature of the role. But you need to lean on people who really understand those specific, discrete areas because that's how we develop good basis for the things that are being built. Yeah, absolutely. And we're all evolving at the same time as crypto is, as the same time as the law around crypto is. And so it's that constant willingness to learn and adapt and, and find your niche. I know personally, I struggle a bit with the ideal of specializing in crypto and, and what area of crypto to, to specialize in. But it's comforting to, to have that reminder where you can, sure, you can specialize, but it's not absolutely necessary to have one area yet because it is still right. so nascent. Yeah, I think that we're, we're a ways away from that. We definitely have specialists in different areas. And they and I lean on them all the time because I know they know that their specialty way better than I ever will. But when you're working with a project, again, whether you're in-house counsel or outside counsel, you need to have some familiarity with all these different areas to give them the right advice, to steer them in the right direction. And then you can lean on other people for the specifics once you get to that part of the work stream. Absolutely. So, Larry, two questions for you. And the time goes by so fast. Let's start with habits. Are there any habits that you've brought into your career? Perhaps it's making your bed, perhaps it's four liters of water a day. Is there anything that comes to mind that has helped you cultivate a successful career? I definitely drink a lot of water and I have my reminders to walk around now and those are good habits for sure. But I think more than anything, the one that's helped me the most in my career is keeping an open mind. And that means a lot of different things, but in this context, it's having an open mind about the things that you're working on, the areas of development in the space. You know, when I became a lawyer, there was pre-Bitcoin. And now, I mean, look at crypto. It's like far beyond Bitcoin. It's beyond Ethereum. I mean, it's a huge ecosystem. And if I didn't have an open mind, I would have never even thought about coming into the space to begin with. And I've got no regrets in that decision but again, as a risk-averse lawyer, it would have been very easy for me to stay in my traditional finance career and keep growing that way too. But 
it wouldn't be as much fun as I'm having now, I don't think. And I, I am very grateful that I took the chance to move into the area because it was a chance at that time. And it still is a chance, but I don't regret it for a second. I think that's a great reminder. Keep an open mind. And a follow-up on that quickly is when you're keeping an open, you want to keep an open mind, but you also want to focus to a certain extent on what you're doing so you can be great at what you're doing. How do you, how do you think about keeping open-minded while balancing an incoming busy workload? There's always ebb and flow to that. Sometimes you need to take a step back, take a deep breath and sort of realign yourself. And I think that helps a lot. It's easy to get lost in the speed of the space of the always growing to-do list of things to work on, the messages to respond to, the notifications to take a look at. But you need to sometimes slow down so you could realign and remember your priorities and remember where you should be focused. Take some space. I, I think that's so important no matter what field you're in, but particularly for crypto where it is 24-7, unlike I think almost any other form of, of payment or value that, that moves online at least, or, or at least legal profession. There's not that many areas of the law that never have a, a minute not off. <laughs> no. Is there... Sorry, you, need to, you need to accept that you will miss things. You're not going to know everything that's going on. It's impossible. There's too much content. There's too, everything moves too fast. You need to just accept that fact. I agree. Accept the fact and listen to the Law of Code podcast, and hopefully you'll stay as on top as most uh, most lawyers are. Larry, is there any advice that you were given early on in your career that has shaped who you have become today? Yeah, I think there's, there's two pieces to it. Is one always stay ethical, and you know, you'll, you'll always be approached in your career with some crazy ideas that maybe aren't intentionally illegal or you know borderline but don't feel great regardless i think it's important to keep your ethics because at the end of the day your reputation is your most valuable possession the other one again i think is probably to focus on the business goals i my my my, my first manager told that to me and it served me really valuably throughout my career and it lets you keep your north star in your in the in your profession when you're focusing on the things that are going to have the highest value impact for your clients. It almost goes back to that 80-20 principle where what's going to move the needle here? Do I need to change the verbiage in this one document or should I do the things that actually matter instead? And it's tempting to procrastinate by feeling busy with those little changes rather than actually moving the needle. That's totally true. You know, being busy and getting things done are not always the same thing. Absolutely. Larry, thank you so much for joining me today, man. It was great to, to chat with you finally on the Love Code podcast. It, I know it was something I was hoping to do for a while, so I really appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing what you do at Delphia and the exciting announcement to come. Maybe once that drops, we'll, we'll have to have you back on, and then you could really tell us what your uh, day-to-day looks like. <laughs> thank you so much, Jacob. This has been a great time. <laughs>